Well, amen. Good morning, King's Cross. My name is Clint, uh, pastor, uh, one of the pastors of this church, and I just want to say welcome to you, especially maybe if it's your first time joining with us. We're glad that you're here. We love the word. We love to sing. We love to pray, and we love to be together as we do all of that. So thank you for joining us this morning. Bow with me one more time as we go to the Lord and ask for his help. Father, I pray even now, even now, most high God and Father of our Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, help us fear you. And in fearing you, be relieved of all our other fears. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Fear dominates our broken world. We live in perhaps the most fearful and anxious generation of Americans ever. And yet, relatively speaking, most of us are safer than we've ever been. Atheist Frank Faridi acknowledges this reality, saying, Why Americans fear more when they have far less to fear than in other moments in the past is a question that puzzles numerous scholars. One argument used to explain this paradox of society is that prosperity encourages people to become more risk and loss averse. He goes on to argue that moral confusion is in large part at root of much of the fear, the fear in our society. However, we not only live in perhaps the most fearful and anxious generation of Americans ever, we also live in perhaps the least God-fearing generations of Americans ever. You put these two together and it's an interesting paradox. This combination would be shocking to early 20th century atheists like Bertrand Russell. One of the great beliefs of atheism, particularly of Russell's sort, was that to liberate society from religion would be to liberate society from fear. Russell argued as much in his famous address, Why I Am Not a Christian. Quote, Religion is based, I think, primarily and mainly upon fear. It is partly the terror of the unknown and partly, as I have said, the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Fear is the parent of cruelty, and therefore it is no wonder if cruelty and religion has gone hand in hand. It is because fear is at the basis of those two things. In this world, we can now begin a little to understand things and a little to master them by help of science, which has forced its way step by step against the Christian religion, against the churches, and against the opposition of all the old precepts. Science can help us to get over this craven fear in which mankind has lived for so many generations. Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us, no longer to look around for imaginary supports, no longer to invent allies in the sky, but rather to look to our own efforts here below to make this world a fit place to live in instead of the sort of place that churches in all these centuries have made it. Theologian Michael Reeves, in his incredible book, Rejoice and Tremble, comments on the grave error that Russell made saying this, while Russell tragically misunderstands what it means for Christians to fear God, one struggles not to laugh at how wildly inaccurate his prophecy has turned out to be. For nearly a century after he said those words, it should be clear to even the most vision-impaired mole that throwing off the fear of God has not made our society happier and less fretful. Reeves goes on to argue, and I believe very convincingly, that the increased fear of everything else is directly correlated to the lack of fear of God in our very culture. 
He surmises the loss of the fear of God is what's ushered in our modern age of anxiety. But the fear of God is the very antidote to our fretfulness. I'm, th I'm thoroughly convinced he's right. And the fear of the Lord is what the apostle Peter turns our attention to today. To fear the Lord is part and parcel to what it means to be a Christian, to be a chosen stranger, an elect exile in this broken world. And what that means for the Christian today is that we have a wonderful opportunity, even this morning, to consider how to be God-fearing light in an everything-else-fearing dark world. Big idea this morning, we must live with the glorious fear of the Lord as exiles in this world. We must live with the glorious fear of the Lord as exiles in this world. And Peter will give us three things, three reminders on how we are to do that. First, I do want to just think about and look at this command together, and then we'll get into those three reminders. So first, live with the glorious fear of the Lord as strangers in this world. Look again at verse 17. If you and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now let's remember the context of which he's saying this. Verses 1 through 12 is all about what God has done to save us in the person and work of Christ. There wasn't one uh, imperative or command in 1 through 12. It's merely all indicatives, all statements about what God had done in Christ and the grace and mercy and kindness to cause us to be born again to this new hope. But last week, beginning in verse 13, Peter transitioned to how we're to live in response to the finished work of Christ. Because Christ has done it all and we rest in his finished work, we then are called to live differently. And he began to talk about how we live differently in verse 13. And specifically, last week he told us to set our hope on future grace, the hope that is to come, and then to be holy as God is holy. That because Christ has saved us, because he saved us in the past, he's keeping us in the present, he's taken us to the, a guaranteed future, we're therefore then called to pursue and live holy lives as his holy people. This third imperative is certainly connected to this call to live a new and holy life. God didn't save you so that you could keep or so that you would keep living in fear to Satan, to sin, and to death in this broken world. He called you to the fear of the Lord, which would again remove and relieve those other fears. And as we conduct ourselves with fear throughout this time of exile, again, we will certainly look like and be aliens and strangers in a fearful world. But before we can even get into this command, we ought to ask the question, what does this command to fear the Lord actually mean? What is the fear of the Lord? It's an easy concept to misunderstand, to get confused about. Because ordinarily, like the way we think about fear automatically makes us a little confused about the concept and thought of fearing the Lord. We fear getting hurt. We fear getting sick. We fear death. We fear or are afraid of scary movies. We fear losing our job or not having enough money to pay the bills. We expect politicians to try to manipulate votes out of us by capitalizing on our fears. Fear, for the most part, in our world has negative connotations in our mind. Therefore, it's common and ordinary for Christians to quickly respond, well, yeah, but the fear of the Lord is not that kind of fear. It just means reverence and respect. Now, that's partially true, but it doesn't capture the full biblical meaning of the fear of the Lord. Reverence and respect can easily reduce it to a stiff and stoic posture. But the Bible has a far more emotional and weighty uh, necessity to this concept of the fear of the Lord. So yes, it includes reverence and respect, but it's far more than reverence and respect. It's also glorious, 
And again, easy to misunderstand. So let's just do a quick survey of the scriptures to see why we can misunderstand what the fear of the Lord is and and this concept in the scriptures. Why is it easy to get confused and not think about this rightly? Well, first, this is the the most repeated command in all the scriptures, do not fear. (laughs) So the thing you read the most in the Bible is to not be afraid. So then immediately you come to fear the Lord, and it's like, wait a minute, I got, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, fear the Lord. Like there's a, there's a little bit of confusion to that. It's okay to feel that. I don't even want to summarize, but let's just look real clearly. We're to not fear punishment. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We are not, as the people of God, to fear death. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there are certain things we're not to fear anymore, our enemies, death, punishment. But there's also even, if, we, if that's not confusing enough for you to set things up to feel the tension, there's also a sinful or wrong kind of fear of God. So there's a righteous kind of fear of the Lord that you must have, but there is a sinful, wrong kind of fear of the Lord. This is displayed on the opening page of Scripture when Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebel and sin against God. They rebel and sin against God. God God comes down in the cool of the day to walk with them in the garden. They're hiding from him. God confronts this hiding, and how does Adam respond? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So there's a kind of fear of God that's not the right kind of fear, a kind of fear that drives you away from him and hiding from him. In fact, this is the kind of fear demons have. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder or are afraid. The unfaithful servant in Matthew 25, when Jesus is talking about stewarding all the resources and opportunities God has given to you, the unfaithful servant says, instead of taking my talent and investing it in the kingdom and and laboring in your kingdom, I went and buried it in a field because I heard you were a mean dude. And this is what he says to the master. I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. So see, sinful fear of God leads you to want to run from God and run from obedience to God. Yet, there's a right and necessary fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs says in 1.7, and then repeats very similarly in chapter 9, verse 10. The psalmist prays for this right kind of fear of the Lord. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. This fear of the Lord, the right fear of the Lord, is a gift of his mercy to us. Mary, before Jesus' birth and her song, the Magnificat in singing, says his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The prophet actually says this fear is the pathway to his goodness. Hosea 3, 5, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This right fear of the Lord is in keeping with our pursuit of holiness. The Apostle Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It is consistent with our understanding of our obedience and our accountability ultimately to God. Koheleth, the author of Ecclesiastes, gets to the end of the book and pursuing all these different meanings in life and he makes his final conclusion. 
The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And yet this right, righteous fear of God is consistent with a reverence that includes an awe and a worship and a joy and a celebration. Such that the psalmist can say, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So again, this fear is not merely this stoic reverence and respect. It's like, oh my goodness, he's greater than any other God. So if you're just stiff and stoic, you don't get the fear of the Lord. There's something more going on. It's more passionate and emotional than that. This awe and this worship and this joy and this celebration is on display after the Lord Jesus raises a little boy from the dead. We read in Luke 7, the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. So there is this sinful fear of the Lord and there is a right fear of the Lord. The sinful fear of God leads us to run away from God and, and run away from obedience. This right fear of the Lord leads us to run towards God in exuberant praise and obedience. One of the good things about this tension and thinking about wrong and right fears, we actually see them contrasted in the same passage of Scripture in a number of places, but two I want to show you. Where we see, wait a minute, there's a right fear and there's a wrong fear. You often think about this wrong fear. That's not what we're talking about, but we do need to think about this right fear. Samuel in Samuel chapter, chapter 12. Notice these two phrases. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. And look at verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. So verse 20, he said, do not be afraid. Verse 24, he says, fear the Lord. You see this contrast, this wrong sinful fear that leads you away from the Lord. And this right fear that says, consider the great things he's done and come a little bit closer. The same things on display at Mount Sinai when the people are trembling before Yahweh. We see this contrast, Exodus verse, uh, chapter 20. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. How does Moses respond? Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The Lord delights in this right fear. Psalm 147, 10, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor in his pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. So again, in summary, I want you to see and feel this tension and understand why maybe your first emotional response to the fear of the Lord is a negative one, because you usually think about fear as a negative thing, and there are negative fears in the Bible, and then there's this right fear. But again, in summary, this sinful fear leads you to run from and disobey God, but the right kind of fear of the Lord is a trembling joy that makes you run towards him and is glorious. We are not to be terrified of him and run away, but to fear him and run towards him in glorious, joyful, trembling worship and trust and obedience. 
And this is to impact all of our lives. We're to conduct ourselves with this gloriously trembling joy as God's chosen people, his elect exiles. And this will certainly be strange in a world full of all kinds of the negative fears. It'll certainly stand out and make us exiles and strangers as if we are resident aliens in a foreign land as we go to glory. So then the question is, okay, Peter, if there's the fear of the Lord, that's what you're talking to us about. And we've surveyed the scriptures and thought about kind of wrong fears and even sinful fear of the Lord and right fear of the Lord. How then do we grow in this fear of the Lord? Peter tells us to remember three things to grow in the right fear of the Lord. Number one, remember our father is our impartial judge. Our father is our impartial judge. If you call on him, As a father who judges impartially, Peter opens up in verse 17. He's made clear the glories of the fact that we've been born again, that we are children of God, that the the most high God of all, Yahweh himself, through Christ Jesus our Lord, is our father, our personal father. We now have the spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of the father. We've been born again to a living hope. Our father has this certain inheritance waiting for us in glory that we will enjoy. We are safe in our Father's care from glory to glory. But this does not mean we should be bad kids. (laughs) So this is what Peter's going to start with. No, if you call on him as Father, remember, this Father of yours is an impartial judge. This Father of yours doesn't play favorites. Understanding the privilege of being one of the king's beloved children shouldn't lead us to abuse this privilege with a rebellious life. This is very similar to Paul's logic in Romans. He says, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And then he knows the sinful flesh, even the sinful flesh of the born-again believer, will be tempted to say, well, if grace abounds, then ought we to sin all the more? Paul's like, by no means. You've been buried with Christ. You are dead to sin. And you are alive to Christ. You You don't continue in sin when you've been set free. You don't continue in bondage when you've been loosed. You don't continue to be a slave to sin and death when you've been given life in Christ. Peter's doing the same thing. No, no, no. If you call on him as father, like don't take advantage and think, oh, great. Pops has got everything for me. Now I can wild out and I'm safe. Peter's like, no, no, no. You missed the whole point. He's also an impartial judge. You've been adopted forever. Forever the most high is your father. But don't abuse this privileged position and instead pursue, and instead of pursuing holiness with your freedom, take the father's generosity towards a sinful end. Peter knows we all have the seeds of the prodigal in our heart. Hey, Father, let, my, let me have my inheritance now. Not later. I don't care about you. I want your stuff. I'm going to go party. He knows that temptation and seed is in our hearts, that in our flesh we will immediately think, oh, if God is my Father, if my Father runs everything, well, then I can do anything. Like, he knows that's there. And so he said, no, 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 no. Remember, if you call on him as Father... He is your father. That's all we talked about in the first 12 verses. The glorious, merciful grace and kindness made that to be true. But also remember, our father is one who judges impartially. Therefore, he commands us to fear the Lord by remembering he's not only our father, but our impartial judge. He doesn't play favorites. He isn't inconsistent with justice. The way we live matters. He's not like those fathers who do not discipline their kids. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He, he doesn't, uh, he's not into this gentle parenting movement as a father. He disciplines those whom he loves. 
He's not going to be the kind of father who you get around him and he's leading and he's in charge of all kinds of stuff and he's got terrible kids and you kind of roll your eyes like, uh, they get away with it because he's their dad. Our Heavenly Father is not about that life. No, no, no. I've called you. I've set you free. I've given you my spirit. I've adopted you. I'm taking you to glory. I've got an inheritance for you so that you could be my special people de demonstrating my fatherly care and concern, not so that you would be the kind of kid or child that everybody rolls their eyes at. No, no, no. Remember, he's a father who judges impartially. Aspiring pastors and deacons and current leaders of our church, remember this qualification in the scriptures. The way you father says something about your character and your ability to serve and labor in Christ's kingdom. Remember the weightiness. Of, he's saying, no, no, God is not the kind of father that's going to be inconsistent with his own children. Last week, I challenged you guys to pursue holiness by comparing yourself to God, because Peter said, God said, be holy for I'm holy. And I challenge you to stop looking at other people, whether you think they're more holy than you or less holy than you, and instead just look at God and all of us realize he is more holy. We need help. I challenge you to do that. But listen, you need to know, not only do you need to do that, you need to know that's what God's doing. He's not comparing you to other children. He's not looking at your growth and holiness and compare it to the person to your front or behind you, to your left or right. Impartially, this word itself in Greek has the idea of not looking at anyone else's face to see whether they approve or not. So the father's not like, you should do this. Let me see how they feel about that. No, no, no. Even as a good earthly father, I parent my children. I'm not comparing them to one another and their obedience to one another. I'm making sure each child individually is trusting and following me and their mom. And I'm not saying, ah... Look, you did this, but they did that, so you're good. No, no, no. What am I calling them to? Are they obeying? If not, how do I discipline them in love to bring them back into the right blessing relationship with the Father? And so we got to understand our Father looks at our lives, and He's not comparing us to other sinners. He's calling us to be holy as He is holy. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us His church. He knows that we'll fail. I fail. We all fail. But we're all to grow and understand and have the same standard, understanding our Father is our impartial judge. Our tender loving father and our impartial just judge and these two thoughts even as we think about this are not at odds with one another but properly understood if we understand the most high is our father and our just judge that should lead to the right fear of the lord he is glorious he is consistent he's not buying any of our silly excuses and every one of us will account to him with our lives this is what peter preached in acts chapter 10 Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Not to an ethnicity, not to a culture, not to a socioeconomic status. Not, no, he shows no partiality. He doesn't pick favorites. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Listen, when the Lord saves you, he changes you. No matter how small that change might be, no matter how slow it might be, he does it. He begins to change your appetite. He says, no, you're my child now. You're not going to keep living like you're an orphan. You're my child. You're safe. I've got you. I'm going to get you to glory. I've got an inheritance for you. Therefore, I've called you to live as my child with my last name, representing me and my family. And so there's change. Your heart changes. Now, it might be little. There might be massive peaks that you couldn't have imagined. There might be uh, um, valleys that are far more nightmarish than you would ever imagine. But if you back up and you look at your life, you see I had a dead heart. He made it alive. I had a heart that did not care about God, that ran from him with the wrong kind of fear. And now I have a heart that runs towards him with the right kind of fear. 
If that's not there, you ought to question whether or not you're even a Christian. Like if there's no change, no desire, no heart posture shift, then you ought to say, Lord, give me a heart that fears you the right way. A heart that fears you and runs towards you and pleads for your mercy and your kindness and forgiveness and your fatherly love and your impartial judging that was poured out on Christ for me. This is what you should do if you don't have a different posture. This is the kind of fear that we ought to have that worships and delights and runs to him in reverential awe. So conduct yourselves with fear as exiles by remembering our father is our impartial judge. Secondly, by remembering we were ransomed by the precious blood. So remember our father is our, our, our impartial judge and remember we were ransomed by the precious blood. Look at verse 18 again. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How do we grow in right fear of the Lord? We remember that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. Now, ransom's a word in the Old Testament that was used to describe when a slave, an individual, might be set free, purchased. Their freedom was purchased by another. The ransom was paid, and so they gained their freedom. It was also a concept that is talked about for Israel when Israel was ransomed out of Egypt from bondage to Egypt and set free through the blood of the lamb that had to be slain. The Passover lamb that then ended up leading to the exodus out of Israel. So this ransom idea was Israel was purchased or ransomed out of bondage to Egypt. And then Isaiah the prophet will later say that Israel returning out of exile is like a second exodus, another delivery, another ransom. So this concept, Peter's now saying, remember you were ransomed. And remember how, what paid the bill. You could take all the billionaires in the world pile up all of their bank accounts. That's not what you were ransomed with. That's not what paid the debt that you owe. No, you, you were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. Like a lamb without spot or blemish. Like that lamb in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, I believe. That says, hey, this is, this is coming. This is going to be one exodus. This is going to be one ransom. This is going to be one delivery. But it's pointing to one that's far greater than this. It's a picture. And this Christ now is this lamb of God. He is spotless in his life. He did die as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. His blood was spilled. And this is what it cost to purchase you, to set you free, to rescue you. He bought you with the precious blood of his beloved son. This is why John the Baptist cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is why the Son of God came. He said the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a what? As a ransom for many, his life as the purchase payment for you to set you free. Tony Evans says, Our holy God demanded a price for sin, and he met his own demands through the sacrificial death of his son. It's any wonder the psalmist prays, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Now, let's also just think for a minute about not just the price that was paid, the blood of Christ, to ransom you. But what were you ransomed from? Particularly, what is Peter emphasizing? There's a number of things biblically that would be right. But what is he emphasizing? He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. 
So again, we're connecting the dots to holiness. All the finished work of Christ in 1 through 12 is now talking to us about pursuing this new life. Christ didn't shed his blood for you to continue to live in bondage to empty and unsatisfying sin. Like he didn't save you for you to stay in bondage of the empty idols you've turned to. Listen, the, the human heart will worship. The human heart will fear. And there's two, again, there's a wrong fear and there's a right fear. The wrong fear leads to emptiness and vanity and meaninglessness. The right fear leads to satisfaction and joy and pleasure. Jeremiah picks up on this in Jeremiah chapter 2. When he talks about what Israel's done, and the Lord says to Israel, my people have committed two evils. You've forsaken me, the fountain of living water that can quench your thirst. And you've hewed out for yourself broken cisterns that can hold no water. This was a well that you would get water out of, but then once, the, once it broke and didn't hold water anymore, they would just become a trash heap. They would throw trash in it. He's like, no, no, no. You've committed two evils. You've rejected the one that can satisfy your soul, and in rejecting him, you can't help. You're going to turn somewhere else. You're going to turn somewhere else with your worship. You're going to turn somewhere else with your fear. You're going to think with your fear, if I don't have this, I won't be happy. So either you'll, you'll say that to the Lord, or you'll say it to the idol you create, but these idols don't satisfy. It's like trash heaps. And you know the connection Jeremiah makes a little bit later in verse 19. Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. So when we do this, we're rejecting the right fear of the Lord. We're turning to the fear of an idol, and that idol will never satisfy us. And Peter is reminding us, you've been ransomed from that reality. You don't have to go back to the idols that don't satisfy anymore. You've received this new and living water. He's brought you back. He's purchased you from bondage to that which does not satisfy. He set you free. He didn't pay the precious price of his son's blood for you to be a slave to sin and bondage of the culture you grew up in, no matter what that culture is. This is why he says, he, 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 you don't have to be in bondage to this of your forefathers. And in, in, in ancient culture, you were supposed to respectfully take on the religion of your forefathers. This would have been mega countercultural for him to say, hey, what your forefathers worshipped was whack. <laughs> it didn't satisfy. It was unfaithful. And you've been ransomed and set free and saved from that. So you're not going back to that. I've set you free. I've purchased you with the blood of my son that you might live in freedom. Christ... To, uh, Titus 2.14 gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, Christ didn't shed his blood so you keep running to the empty promises of sexual immorality in this perverse culture we live in. That's not why he saved you. So that you could click on more pornography. Or you could keep believing that your identity is found in your sexual desires. Paul makes it clear. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 18, flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He ransomed you from the, uh, with the blood of his son to set you free from thinking that the American dream was the purpose of your life. He ransomed you with the blood of his son, the Lamb of God. So that you would no longer live for the love of money as if that would satisfy. He didn't live a spotless and unblemished life and die your death so you keep chasing vain pleasure and power and platforms. Brothers and sisters, I just need you to know I've met people who have everything your sinful flesh longs for. And they're as miserable as they were when they longed for it. 
Christ has purchased you. You don't have to long for it any for, anymore. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. You can choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You can have these things as he gives them. They can be gifts to you, but you understand they're not gods to you. You've been ransomed and set free from the way of your forefathers, even the forefathers of our culture. Remember the precious price paid to set you free and, uh, from the empty bondage you used to live in fear of the Lord. Again, 1 Samuel 12, 24, only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So how do we grow this fear of the Lord? How do we conduct ourselves with fear as exiles? By remembering our Father is our impartial judge. By remembering we were ransomed by the precious blood. And lastly, by remembering our faith and our hope are in God's sovereign love. Our faith and our hope are in God's sovereign love. Again, look at verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, what Peter does right here is incredible. Again, especially if you like literary realities. He's, he's kind of finishing up the introduction of this epistle, and he's going to connect all kinds of dots of these imperatives right now back to the glorious indicatives of the beginning in verse 1 through 12. If you think back to verse 1 and 2, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Christ also now, Peter connects the dots for us, was foreknown or foreloved before the foundation of the world as the eternal Son of God. What is Peter doing with this? Why is he making this connection? You were foreknown by the Father. Christ is foreknown. What, what, what's he doing right there? Now, Christ is the eternal Son of God. But this one who's foreknown, this plan, he's now made manifest in this day, in these last times. So what is he doing? He's shown us the Father planned our salvation, the Son purchased it, and the Spirit preserves it. Before the foundation of the earth, this was plan A and there was no plan B. And Peter's connecting the dots to verse 10 through 12, which we looked at our great privilege on, in our birthday and our address on this side of the cross. He said, no, 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 remember. Remember, he's done this before the foundation of the earth, the triune God was planning redemption and he knew and had you in his mind. Every single day of yours was written in the Lamb's book. He knows your name was going to be written in the Lamb's book. He knew what was going to happen. He knew when you were going to be born and he knew in this moment dots would connect in First Peter that would make your heart fear the Lord. He's demonstrating his sovereign love in these last times, that is, since Christ lived, died, and resurrected. Notice, why do I say sovereign love? Obviously, his plan is coming to pass. But why do I say love? Look at the end of verse 20. Look at that glorious phrase. For the sake of you. Peter wants you to connect this glorious, transcendent, sovereign plan of God's redemption to this intimate, personal, fatherly love for you. He wants you to connect those dots because then you're going to understand and fear the Lord rightly. You're going to stand back with this, with, with, well, looking at his transcendence and you're going to move forward looking at his intimacy and his willingness to be near to one like you, one like me. Brothers and sisters, fear the Lord by remembering his sovereign love for you. The incarnation of Christ and the revelation of the Holy Spirit is for your sake. Before the foundation of the world, for your sake, 
bask in this privilege. Don't throw it away by not fearing God. No, no, fear God. Run to him. Consider the mystery of redemption. Consider how this sovereign God would create man in his image, who would rebel against him, run away from him, would come after them in the person and work of his son, live for them the perfect righteous life so that he would be the unblemished, spotless lamb of God, and then die on Calvary's cross to pay the penalty they owe so they could ransom them from the futile ways inherited from their forefathers so that he might take them to glory forever. And in the midst of all that, make them a people here on earth proclaiming his grace. Think on this and understand you're a part of it. It's through him we are believers in God. Through his resurrection we have faith and hope in God. Now this hope, again, for my English nerds in the room, forms an inclusio with verse 13, which is where he said, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace. That was the first command. Now he's given us, he also told us to be holy, and then thirdly, he's saying, fear God, and then he's coming back to this hope, showing you. All of this is connected to all that preceded it. Look at the verses together. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's according to his great mercy he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look down to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now look again at verse 21. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and hope are in the outworking of God's eternal plan in Christ. This should lead our hearts to conduct themselves with fear in the Lord as strangers in this world. We might suffer various trials here and now, but we have new hearts that give evidence to the new birth of Christ, that hope in this faith. Those new covenant hearts that move toward God in staggering joy and awful exuberance and reverent rejoicing and in trembling exaltation in the fear of the Lord. Don't you feel it even now by his spirit through his word? That's because he kept his new covenant promise. In Jeremiah thirty-two forty. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Christian, are you still turning to him? That's because he put the fear of him in your heart. Conduct yourselves with fear as exiles by remembering our Father is our impartial judge. We were ransomed by his precious blood, and our faith and our hope are in his sovereign love. Brothers and sisters, we should not be terrified of God, but we must live with the glorious fear of the Lord as exiles in this world. And I believe we've got a unique opportunity that Michael Reeves is right. And I read again, the loss of the fear of God is what ushered in our modern age of anxiety. But the fear of God is the very antidote to our fretfulness. So let us grow in this fear and be a light in this anxious and dark world. And with the psalmist, rejoice in the fact that we read the Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry. And saves them. May we be people who fear God in all of our conduct, in our time as exiles. Let's close in prayer.